All right. Well, church family, we're going to go ahead and dive in because we, like every week, have a lot to uncover. So I'm going to open us up in prayer as we continue on our church history lesson. And in this mini-series within church history, we're on our road to reformation, which, as you remember from last lesson, we're doing that in three lessons. Uh, Last lesson, which was a while back before Isaac's ordeal in the hospital, uh, we had talked about the first road to Reformation, we talked about the mile markers on the road that led to Luther and the Reformation, all the culminating issues. And today, we will continue on that road as we examine the pre-Reformation voices, the pre-Reformers, the men and the movements inspired by these men that were dissenting voices to the Roman Catholic Empire of the day. So what's that? We're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. Father God, we are grateful that you love us. It is a blessing to be able to teach your people truths from history and lessons that we can learn from history. And although teaching on church history is not the same as teaching your word, Father, it testifies of your word because history is, like we have talked about before, truly your story. It is the unfolding of your providence, of your divine plan before all time began where everything is going to culminate in the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, where all of history leads to the cross and flows now from the victory of King Jesus, resurrected from the dead, by which all the nations are coming to know him, and your glory is going to the uttermost parts of the earth to redeem your people, and you work through fallen men, broken kings, you raise up kingdoms, You shatter kings, you build up your church, you endure with your church as she grows more and more spotless and blameless over time. So I ask you give us ears to hear and eyes to see your hand in history and help us to learn great glorious truths as we look at men and the movements of these men that you ordained to bring reformation to Europe and ultimately to Christendom throughout the world as the gospel gets to be purified from the traditions of men through immorality and bureaucracy for your glory and namesake. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. So we continue on the road to Reformation. Like I mentioned, last lesson, we examined the mile markers that led to the road to Reformation. And again, as a public service announcement, we do have all of our lessons that we ever do recorded and on Sermon Audio. You can go to Sermon Audio, look at Pope Baptist Church, or you can go to our church's website, find the most recent ones, click on the link. They'll take you there so you can catch up. So I'm not going to go into all the weeds of last lesson, but as a reminder, we looked at several roads that led in the province of God to Martin Luther and the Reformation, the culminating issues. We looked at the moral corruption of the church, the moral road. We examined the religious and political roads, and then finally the theological roads that led to Luther. And we saw how the moral corruption of the church, the many papal abuses, the politics with the rise of nation, st- nation states and the independent church, uh, nation churches, and the theological issues of Bible translation, of preaching and sacraments, the rise of the teaching of purgatory and the selling of indulgences, in addition to a new view of church tradition and authority, how all of these things crossed paths that finally converged into Wittenberg and the 95 Theses and the renewal of the church through the 
mighty efforts of Martin Luther. Now, someone last time asked me here if there were, uh, at, at the end of the lesson, they were like, wow, there was just so much bad stuff going on. Were there any men or missionaries going into these places to proclaim the right Jesus, the right gospel? And the answer that we'll learn today is yes, there were. Because long before Luther, dozens of dissenting vo- movements, dozens of Reformation voices emerge in Catholic Europe during the medieval era. There were many faithful Roman Catholics that lamented the state of the church up until Luther's time. So lest we get our history bias, it wasn't like, oh, everyone was, the Roman Catholic Church is great, the Pope's great, we love everything, one guy just had a, something stuck in his craw, and this is the Protestant Reformation. Don't believe that lie. That's the lie that Roman Catholics want to feed you. It is not true. For centuries up to Luther, there were many faithful, ordinary Christians that didn't buy into the system that they were given. There were many faithful that truly looked to Christ by faith and looked to grace as it, was ta- as it is actually taught in Scripture, despite the system. And there were many faithful theologians and teachers within the church that called out problems and ills within the church long before Luther. And that's what we're talking about today. They saw the moral corruption of the priests and the popes. Everyone saw the power play between church and state that we talked about last time. And those issues, coupled with what is the rise of the Renaissance, many of you know the Renaissance because of uh, great men like Michelangelo, Donatello, uh, all of those guys. You know the Renaissance. How many of you have heard of that before? Anyone who knows history has heard of that. We're going to talk about the Renaissance next lesson. But all of these things converge from the 1300s on that lead the church in Europe to finally say, hold it, enough is enough. Let us get back, finally, to the Bible. Martin Luther made the largest splash in the Protestant Reformation, that's absolutely for sure. But other faithful men had cast their rocks of reform into the water centuries before Luther. And that those rocks of reformation that splashed caused ripples that led all the way up to Luther's day. And in many ways, Martin Luther rode on the waves caused by these other men prior. So our lesson today is going to look at these pre-reformers, the highwaymen on the road to the Reformation. So last lesson, we looked at the moral markers that led up to the culminating issues to Luther and the Reformation. This lesson, we're going to be talking about the highwaymen, the men who were the voices that said, we are needing to head a different direction. And that is what we're going to do here today. Now, contrary to what a lot of you have probably have learned and a lot of Protestant history lessons before, especially if you hear any Roman Catholic counter arguments to the Protestant Reformation that say that there were only a very few minor groups and people who disagreed, There were dozens upon dozens upon dozens of various men and movements and groups centuries leading to Luther. And within those groups, some smaller, some larger, you had groups that reached thousands upon thousands who converted to proper biblical preaching and to gospel Christianity, who fought for reforms, who were heavily persecuted, but fought for it. So we're going to be talking about some of the key major men and movements today because there's a lot So I encourage you to find good books to learn about those lesser movements, those lesser men, not lesser men in glory and work, but just lesser men known in history. Uh, But we're going to talk about the major ones. So the first group, and I'm going to try and go in chronological order. 
So we're looking at the road to Reformation. Reformation happens in the 1500s. So we're going to be going all the way back in our DeLorean a few hundred years to around the 1100s to a guy named Peter Waldo and a group called the Waldensians. How many of you have ever heard of the Waldensians before? comes from Peter Waldo. Uh, that's named after him. And Peter Waldo is not to be confused with the famous Where's Waldo, in case you're wondering. This is not a guy who wears a red and white striped shirt with the dark glasses, the cool seek and find kids book. That's awesome. Uh, not to be confused with him. This is Peter Waldo, who was born in Lyon, France in 1173. Uh, and he was the son of a wealthy French merchant. However, uh, growing up under the tutelage of his father, who was a devout Roman Catholic, his father taught him that although they were wealthy, they were to do generous and to do good. And he took the command of Christ to go and sell all you have to the poor and follow me. He took that passage from Matthew to heart and believed that that was something that God was calling him in his life. And so Waldo, in his later adolescence, gave away all of his wealth and inheritance to the poor and decided to survive as a beggar but live as a man who would teach the truth of God's word to his fellow Frenchmen. And he lived his entire life as an illegal preacher of the gospel in France. He would go by the French countryside, go to peasants, asking for food, finding work where he could take it. But he would go and he, because he was a rich man's son, he had education. He was literate so he could read. Latin. He was able to read the scriptures. He had some of the scriptures in his hand and taught them to the Frenchmen in the French common tongue. Now, that was a big ordeal. Again, for people who may be new here, I encourage you to go back if you want to listen to previous lessons. I'm going to assume already things I've taught before. I'll clarify as I can, so just hold on if you don't understand something. And if you have questions at the end, any of you can ask, okay? But... Remember, it was against canon law, the Roman Catholic Church's official teachings on how the church was to be governed. It was against canon law for anyone to preach without the approval of either a bishop of a diocese or the pope himself. Well, Peter, Peter Waldo didn't have either. He didn't care. He didn't think he needed it. Well, that got him in trouble with the French bishops and eventually with the pope himself. Uh, preaching illegally can mean either you were imprisoned or it could actually lead to death. Well, eventually, not wanting either, Waldo eventually appealed to the Pope of his day for his license to preach, but he was denied by the Pope. And so, in defiance of the Pope and of canon law, he went and illegally preached the gospel anyway to his fellow Frenchmen. And eventually, in the year 1185, as his popularity began to grow in the French community, as his preaching became more influential in the French community, Pope Lucius III, thinking that he was a heretic, excommunicated Waldo and any who would believe him or follow him. Now, remember, excommunication means something very significant in this period of time. To be excommunicado literally means to be outside of the community. What did that mean? If you were excommunicated at this time because of the belief that the church, headed by the Pope, holds the keys of the kingdom of God, what do keys do? They lock or open. If the Pope pronounced you excommunicated, he's locked you from the kingdom of God. He's locked you from heaven. He's locked you from salvation. And that was a tactic, as we've learned in 
are lessons that the popes had used to control a lot of Roman Catholics. Because if you knew, man, my soul is going to be damned if I don't follow this guy, you're going to follow and give in. Well, Peter Watto didn't. He knew that the pope was, didn't have that authority. He believed the word of God over what the popes were saying of his day and said, no, salvation is by faith in Christ alone. You cannot bar me from the kingdom of God. And so he went boldly, defied Pope Lucius III, and preached anyway. Well, he had a large following. And in their excommunication, forced into exile, the Waldensians regrouped and began to reexamine many other Roman Catholic doctrines. And as they studied the scriptures, the Waldensians arrived at many non-Roman Catholic conclusions. And as they studied, they began to teach their other fellow Frenchmen what they were learning from the Bible. And so early Reformation thinking began to emerge in France 400 years before Luther. A lot of their efforts came from the providence of God in allowing Peter Waldo to know how to read and write. That was significant. Because he was able to read and write, he was able to teach other of his followers how to read and write. And from there, they took feeble efforts to translate the Bible, which was primarily in Latin in the West at this time, into French and began to distribute French material so that Frenchmen, for the first time, almost ever, could read God's word for themselves. So, what were some of the Reformation doctrines and conclusions of the Waldensians taught that riled up the Protestant spirit in France? In the 1100s. Well, the first is the supremacy of the Bible. They taught that the Bible is the supreme authority of faith and practice for the Christian life and not the Pope or any church councils. And in emphasizing the supreme authority of Scripture over the Popes, over the councils, the Waldensians emphasized the priority of the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament to direct Christian living. And not only did they reject the authority of the Pope, they also rejected the notion of the Pope's infallibility, which is to say that when the Pope speaks on doctrinal matters to the church, it is as God speaking. It is without error. That means that's what infallibility means. Now, as a reminder, because we remember repetition, when we talked about the history of the Popes a while back, is not until the 1800s at the First Vatican Council that the Roman Catholic Church officially makes it Doctrine that the Pope is infallible when he speaks about doctrinal matters. However, that feeling and sentiment had been present centuries before and was really brewing and fermenting around this time. So even though it wasn't, quote, canon, it was almost taught and believed that, and the Waldensians said, no, the Pope is fallible. He's a fallible man. He errs, and only God's word is without error. And that made them enemies of the state in many ways. The Waldensians also rejected the doctrine of transubstantiation, the doctrine that grew out in excuse me, grew out of the late um, ancient period into the early Middle Ages, that said that when the bread and wine are consecrated, they become the literal body and blood of Jesus. And later developments taught that not only did it convert into the literal body and blood of Jesus, but that it was propitiatory. In nature. Now, where do we get the word propitiatory from? The Bible. If you don't know what propitiatory means, it means to satisfy God's wrath. So Roman Catholic dogma began around this time to teach that the heart of worship is going to the Lord's Supper. 
eating the bread, drinking the wine, because you're eating and drinking Jesus himself to satisfy your sins. Well, the Waldensians, in reading scripture, saw there's no, nothing in scripture that teaches this. So they rejected it, and they taught their Frenchmen to reject it. In addition, they also rejected the growing doctrine of purgatory, prayers to the dead, and the selling and the doctrine in general of indulgences. And reminder, an indulgence is a work that you do, typically of giving something to the church to minimize the penalty of your sin. To prove that you are repentant for your sin, you do something to prove your penance. And that was called an indulgence. And in so doing, you merited God's forgiveness. And that was growing around this time, and it had its cap at Martin Luther's day. But we've talked about all that before, so I'm not going to camp on there much longer. Like I mentioned before, the Waldensians translated the Bible into French. The Waldensians broke with the church canon law that kept the scriptures in Latin. And as a reminder, why did they keep it in Latin? Well, there's two primary reasons. One was a sincere belief that the church needed unity, and that if the Bible was made available for anyone to read, you would get a thousand splinter groups and a thousand interpretations that would divide the church. Is that wrong? Yes. Is there, is there reasoning unreasonable? No, it's not unreasonable, even though that conclusion is wrong. But there was also another group. There was a higher group. There was an echelon of different players, different cardinals, and definitely lots of popes who knew that it was a way to control the people. Because if they could control what the scriptures say, if the average person can't go and read the Bible and say, hey, wait, Pope, this, this, isn't, this is not what the scripture says, that they can control the hearts of men, kingdoms, and, of course, their own fame and glory. But the Waldensians said no. The scripture was written in the common Hebrew for the Hebrew man in the Old Testament. It was written in the common Greek for the common Greek speaker. It should be written in French. It should be written in English. And let's remember our history. A long time ago, we talked about that this cry of translating the Bible into the common tongue has long been a cry of the church in the West, squelched by the authorities. But it began to rise again at a higher fervent pitch amongst the Waldensians. And slowly they began to distribute tracts in French to, the, to their fellow Frenchmen. Thousands of Frenchmen converted to a message of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, the supremacy of the Bible alone. That the Pope, although he might be a figurehead of the church, is not the true head and he's definitely fallible, not infallible. That's what they preached. And finally, the Waldensians, in defiance of the man, established schools to train other preachers. Believing that the Roman Catholic Church had erred, they developed schools to train preachers, preachers who could read the Bible, who memorized the Bible, and preached it to the common man. As a reminder, the average priest in Roman Catholic Europe at this time himself could not read. And only knew the portions of scripture that were necessary for the liturgy of the mass. There are many reasons for that. You can go back to listen to the other lessons. But the Waldensians for the Frenchmen began to change that. Men were beginning to learn to read because of one wealthy rich man who taught others to read. And literally they were cutting their teeth on their grammar and rhetoric on French primitive 
Bible translations. But it paved the way for a future Reformation that would blossom in France later on. Finally, the Waldensians, Bible translators, preachers, teachers, they were also zealous evangelists. And they actually sent men and women to go all over France to proclaim the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ. So, that was a lot. If you remember only one thing about the Waldensians, it's this. They were the second largest non-Roman Catholic group during the medieval ages. Many Roman Catholics sympathized with their teachings and their critiques of the church of that day. Many who still didn't abandon Rome sympathized with their teachings because they saw what they were saying and they acknowledged, yep, we see the popes are messed up. Yep, we realize that there's papal corruption. Yep, we realize that the, that the priests are immoral. Yes, we realize that something is dead and dying and we need something better and what you're preaching seems better. And in the province of God, many wealthy French Christians contributed to the cause of the Waldensians to help sustain their efforts, even if many of them didn't leave the Roman Catholic Church. The Waldensians were, above all other groups up until this time, the OG Protestants of the day. They were Protestants before the Protestant Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church, in response, persecuted them heavily. Many died. Many were imprisoned, but many did survive. And they remained in northern Italy, leaving France, uh, and eventually joined Luther in the Reformation in the 1500s. When Luther came and Reformation teachings started to sweep all of Europe, they came out of hiding more, and they joined the stream of Reformation for gospel glory. The Waldensians still exist to this day. And in Italy, they are the oldest Protestant group in the world by the province of God. So those are the Waldensians by Peter Waldo. Moving on, the next major group is a fun one called the Petrobrussians. Petrobrussians, that's just a fun word to say. It's named after their founder, another Peter, Peter de Bru. Little is known of Peter himself, except that he was originally a Roman Catholic priest who grew weary in his time as a priest of the immorality of the priesthood, of the corruption of the papacy, and of many other impure doctrines that he suspected were creeping into the church. And so he began his own doctrinal reforms in the year 1105, but eventually was later condemned as a heretic and burned at the stake around 1120. So he had 15 years of reform. Although he did not have much time, his ideas lived long past him amongst his group called the Petrobrusians. So what did these guys believe? Well, most of what we know from them comes actually from their greatest persecutor and opponent, another Peter. Peter's a f- popular name this day and age. Uh, Peter the Venerable. He wasn't really venerable because he was a mean guy. He murdered these guys. But Peter the Venerable, he was an abbot of the monastery in Cluny, France. He was a loyal son of the Roman Catholic Church, and he was a fierce opponent of the Petrobrusians. He was actually on the Inquisition, which we've talked about before. He was a member of the Inquisition squad, persecuting any dissenting voices of Roman Catholic theology. And it's from his critiques and his books that we learn what the Petrobrusians believed. He detailed them because he believed it was important for future projects to know what these heretics taught. These heretics were right. So, from the pen of the man who drew blood from these Petrobrusians, this is what Peter the Venerable said these guys taught. One, the Petrobrusians denied infant baptism. If you can remember something cool about the Petrobrusians, they literally were the OG Baptists of this time. 
In every sense of what it means to be Baptist, they really were. They denied infant baptism, which was a major departure in church history at this time. They agreed that only those who profess faith in Christ would be baptized. And tied closely to this, they rejected the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. How many of you have heard that term before? We've talked about it. Baptismal regeneration is the teaching that in the waters of baptism, you are, you are justified. You are born again in the waters of baptism. You're regenerated, which was a teaching of the church historically for a long time in the, in the, mid, in the Roman Catholic Church because they believed that baptism was the gateway to the Christian life. It is where you are born again. You are justified, but their view of justification was a lifelong process by which you become more and more righteous, starting at baptism, ending at your death, depending upon how much grace you have in your soul via sacraments. Petrobrushians denied all that. They said justification is by faith alone, by grace alone. Baptism along with the Lord's Supper, they taught, were signs pointing to a reality and not the reality itself. Something that the early church had taught, but began to be eclipsed by doctrines of men. Second, the Petrobrusians also denied sacred objects. They denied the use of relics, and they even denied the holiness of church buildings, altars, or anything else, even crosses. They refused to use crosses or make the sign of the cross. Sadly, to their, to their discredit, Peter encouraged his followers because of this belief, to destroy church buildings, to smash altars, to burn crosses. Uh, and he even had all of his followers in destroying churches, they would take down the crosses and use them as ladles to ladle soup. That was terrible. But they believed it was firmly tied to this visible corruption that goes against what they believe was the pure teaching of the New Testament of a simplicity of worship. Not man-made instruments, not man-made symbols, not man-made forms, but just doing what the Word of God said. So they were so reactionary to a fault that it hurt their witness, but no one's perfect. This reminder, when you see these glaring warts on people in history, we don't need to be afraid of guys' warts. You have warts. I have warts. Everyone but Jesus has warts. But it doesn't mean that they weren't still good golly men or movements. So we don't need to be afraid of the warts, but they did have a big one here. Um, the Petrobrusians really tried hard to ask the question, does the Bible teach this? And if it didn't, they wholeheartedly rejected it. Anything man-made, uh, they put by the wayside. And in many ways, they were... Uh, holders to the principle of the regular principle of worship. If you're a reformed person, you know what that is. That in worship, we do what God says, we don't do what he forbids, and then we don't take liberty anywhere else. They were one of the clear voices of this day teaching that. As I mentioned earlier, like the Waldensians, the Petrobrusians also denied uh, the Lord's Supper being a sacrifice for the Mass, and they also denied transubstantiation. They believe Communion, just like baptism, were signs, not the realities, that pointed to a spiritual reality. And then finally, like the Waldensians again, the Petrobrusians denied prayers to the dead. They denied the doctrines of purgatory that were developing around this time. And they denied that any good work on behalf of the dead can benefit them at any point. They believed that in Christ, in Christ alone, by faith alone, are men saved. And it's appointed once for men to die, and after this, the judgment. That's what they taught, in defiance of what was the common teaching of the day. They also rejected the requirement of priests to be celibate. They believed it was, one, not only unbiblical, there was no, nothing in the Bible that says priests, pastors have to be celibate. 
But they also say one of the chief reasons there was such a high sexual morality amongst the clerics was because of the issue of celibacy. They're burning with passion, so they need wives. So they called for a reformation in this, which got them, again, to be enemies of the state really fast. The Petrobrusians, brothers and sisters, and the Waldensians are just two of many examples of faithful gospel-centered Christians living in the Roman Catholic medieval Europe. And it reminds us as Protestants yet again that Jesus didn't leave his church in the Dark Ages. We've got to remember that. It wasn't like Jesus brought the apostles there were some good times for a little bit. Augustine was the cherry on top, and then everything went to hell in a handbasket until Luther. That is not true. That's a denial of all that the Bible teaches, that Jesus has built his church. It's going to advance. The gates of hell can't stop its advancement, and that through its warts and all, it will grow like leaven, and it will overtake and permeate. And like the mustard seed, it grows small, and it becomes the, uh, the largest tree in the garden by which the birds of the air nest. That is the message of Scripture. Jesus is the foundation of the church. Jesus is the foundation of the kingdom of God. And that foundation will never crack, and it can never go away. So the church has always been the church. And various brightness and dullness and various strengths and weaknesses has always been there. So a very faithful stream and remnant of people existed centuries before Luther. And echoed a lot of sentiments that earlier Christians had as they started to see the chess pieces move towards this ungodly system that became a man-centered, tradition, pope-exalting, work-based view of Christianity. So, we need to remember that. Next group, moving on. we got more to uncover. John Wycliffe. How many of you know, have heard of that? Wycliffe. Wycliffe Bible Translations. John Wycliffe. Now, how many of you know the term Lollards? Not as many hands. I didn't think about that. Well, the Lollards come from John Wycliffe. They were his followers. Uh, John Wycliffe was born in 1330 and died in 1384. And he is known as the Morning Star of the Reformation. And I'm going to talk about what that means uh, at the end of the portion on John Wycliffe, but he's the morning star of the Reformation and the Lollards with the name of the group that he inspired. And he was a theology professor at Oxford for a while in England in the 1300s. He began to be so popular in his teaching of the Bible and his knowledge that he actually became the religious advisor to King Edward III for a period of time. Wycliffe was a man of very great learning and of preaching, of oratory, physically, he was a very thin man with very frail health. However, God blessed him with a very sharp mind and a very passionate spirit. He possessed what his uh, critics and his admirers both recognized. He possessed, quote, a fiercely independent and inquisitive mind. And that was used in the providence of God because he was independently minded, which was different than this time period. This time period was you thought like everyone else. Like, to have an independent mind during this time in history was to be really weird because communities were as that. Religion binds us. Common oath, common vow, common religion, common culture, common practice. Why are you thinking outside of the group? He thought outside, he thought outside of the group. His inquisitive mind that was fiercely independent, God used to bring reformation in England because he never accepted a doctrine just because. As a theology professor, he believed it was his duty to examine everything back to the early church fathers and to scripture. And where there was deviation, he asked why. 
Why? 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 And because of all the whys, he pressed for questions and looked at perspectives that most other people assumed or just ignored. And that made him not only brilliant, but God used that to launch a massive Protestant Reformation in England before the Reformation of Luther. Wycliffe, like I said, was a man of great learning, and he had a very sharp mind. And for those who knew him best, Wycliffe was called a warm-hearted and honest man, which was a great thing. A lot of men who have very sharp minds have very cold hearts, but that was not Wycliffe. He was very warm-hearted. His warm personality, his sharp mind, and also his ability to speak to the common Englishmen won him over to the common English man. In his writings and in his speakings against the Roman Catholic Church, uh, he was never rude, he was never crass, but he was direct and harsh and loving when needed. And he possessed that rare quality among preachers that ought to be of all godly men, of gracious boldness, that truly defined Wycliffe. So, what did Wycliffe teach? Well, his convictions grew over time as he began to read scripture more, but As he studied both the early church fathers and the scriptures, he heralded several Reformation cries going back to the Bible. The first was sola scriptura. He believed that scripture was the sufficiency of the Christian life and not popes or councils. In his book, The Truth of the Holy Scriptures, he argued that the Bible is the chief authority over the Christian and that all Christians must test any doctrine to the word of God, and not to the popes or to the councils or even the early church fathers themselves. And because of this view, Wycliffe advocated that the Bible is to be translated into English, not chained to Latin. So, because of this belief, one of the first things that Wycliffe did in his ministry was gather a team of scholars from Oxford, and they began to translate the Bible from Latin into English. This took a long time. They didn't have computers. They didn't have typewriters. They penned this all by hand by candlelight. But they produced hundreds of translations of the Bible from Latin into English and began to distribute them. And they also distribute tracts. They began to distribute pamphlet materials to teach the Bible and biblical doctrines for the common Englishmen. Now, in 1384, the first English Bible was produced. And a few years later, Wycliffe's secretary, John Purvey, later produced a second edition that was more readable and more popular. But over the course of several decades, the English Bible came to be for the first time in England. And in addition to translating the Bible into English, like I mentioned, there was many tracts, many pamphlets, but there was also the trouble of the Englishman not being able to read. So Wycliffe began to teach men how to read. You'll find that a lot of Reformation groups said the reading of God's word and the hearing of God's word are essential for the life of the Christian because how can we believe if we cannot hear or read? And so teaching Christians to read became paramount among these godly men. And in any society where there's going to be godly reform, there's going to be a renewal of the learning to read and write so we can engage with the scriptures ourselves, which is why the most godly, illustrative Christian societies have always been the most educated because of this truth. And we should take that to heart as we consider the education of our children and for our own lives. Now, Wycliffe's view here, like the other Peter, Waldo, was revolutionary, talking about translating the Bible again into English, outside of the French, this is going to be outside of the Latin. 
Now, every faithful Roman Catholic believed the Bible was the word of God. But at the same time, they believed that the Bible was the Bible of, was the book of the clerics, that it, they shouldn't be read. However, Wycliffe argued that even if men could not read, they could still hear the word of God. And so he created an intense evangelistic and preaching regime to preach the word of God in English over the course of several decades. Over the centuries, as I've mentioned before, Roman Catholic church authorities didn't want independently led Bible studies. Why? Because what they found out was if men were able to study the scriptures on their own, almost always they will arrive to non-Roman Catholic conclusions. So, of course, the Roman Catholics didn't want that. However, because of Wycliffe's great fame in England, because he was the preacher of the common man, and because the nobility loved his popularity because it stuck it to the Pope, because, the, because the, the, the rich Englishmen didn't want to be under the boot of the Pope anymore, they supported him. And the Roman, excuse me, the Roman Catholic authorities, for a while, could not touch Wycliffe. And God used that to great advantage to preach the truth to many people. Moving on, Wycliffe also taught that there was a distinction between the visible church and the invisible church, that visibly pe- people go to a church building, that physically people profess Jesus, but only those who are truly born again by faith, the elect of God, are the ones who are the true church, even though there might be a visible outward form. He began to teach more clearly this doctrine that is a sound biblical and reformation doctrine of the invisible and visible church. He also railed against the authority of the Pope, because like many others before him, he denied the Pope was the supreme head over the whole church, and he also denied that the Pope had authority over the secular authorities. He did not believe that the Pope had authority over the King of England or the King of France or anywhere. His authority was only to be over Rome because he was the Bishop of Rome and nowhere else. Well, this got him into a lot of trouble with Rome, understandably. However, He wrote three popular books to defend these views on divine dominion, where he attacked papal authority, on civil dominion, where he attacked Rome's claims to authority over secular matters, and then he wrote finally a book called On the Truth of Sacred Scripture that asserts that the Bible is above the Pope and is sufficient for all Christian doctrine. Moving on, like many other men, we learn repetition, like Peter Waldo, like Peter DeBrew and the Petrobrusians, Wycliffe rejected transubstantiation. He argued for the biblical concept that was held earlier in the church by Augustine, that it was a real presence of Christ, that there is a real participating in the body and blood of Jesus if we eat by faith, but it is by faith looking through the sign to the reality, not becoming merely carnal in and of itself. Wycliffe quotes Augustine and says about the Lord's Supper, in carnal eating, that which is eaten changes into nourishment for the eater when it's taken in by his members. But in spiritual eating, it is otherwise. When one eats the body of Christ spiritually, one is thereby incorporated into the members of the church and thus into Christ. The act of spiritual eating then exceeds mere carnal eating. He also criticized the Greek Aristotelian underpinnings that the Roman Catholics used to defend their view of transubstantiation that we talked about a while back. Um, 
He argued that the biblical view of communion was hijacked in the 11th century by the Roman Catholic Church, though he argued that it was faithfully preserved by the Eastern Orthodox churches in the East. Later on, Wycliffe made more bold attacks against communion on his book On the Eucharist. And like many other pre-reformers, they denied not only transubstantiation, but that the Mass itself was salvific, that there was something when you take communion that forgives you of your sins. They denied that. They denied that Jesus forgives sins once for all on the cross that you access by faith. So, Wycliffe was aware that he was going against the teaching of his day. He knew that he was a fish swimming upstream. He was going against the grain, but he armed himself with scripture. He armed himself with clear logic and reasoning, and he armed himself with knowledge of the church fathers to support all of his positions, which made him an almost impregnable fortress against Roman Catholic critics. However, he began to lose favor with the English nobility and with many common men. Because as soon as he started attacking the mass, people loved him attacking the immorality. People loved him saying, yes, let's get the Bible into our language. The rich loved that he was saying, forget the Pope. But as soon as he says, transubstantiation is not biblical, and you don't actually have sins forgiven by the mass, everyone's like, whoa, you went too far, man. That was one step too far. Because once Wycliffe went for the jugular, most of his supporters abandoned him. Once he went to the heart of what became the means of salvation, really, communion, eating Jesus, so you can have forgiveness of your sins, when, when he attacked that, people were like, well, now you're, you really are a heretic. That's too far. Surely you're not right, because this is the Catholic position for centuries. Well... Because he lost his support, he lost a lot of his influence at that time. However, he didn't lose heart. He still kept on preaching. He still had a band of faithful followers. And in his defense, he began to appeal more towards the Eastern Orthodox brothers across the world. Because in his arguments against communion and transubstantiation, and against Rome's claims that they were the one true church that has never deviated in doctrine, he said, wait a minute, what about the Eastern Christians? They've been around just as long as you, Rome, and they have never taught nor believed what you teach and practice. So you can't say that you're the one true undivided church. What about these guys? And, I, and that he argued that they were right on the issue of communion. It was a clever strategy. And actually, if you read later reformers, Martin Luther, Calvin, many other reformers borrowed the strategy of Wycliffe and their attacks against Rome by saying, we appeal to the East. The East are just as old as you, and they don't do this. So you can't say that you are the oldest, the most wisest, that you've never changed, because there's this group here that also hasn't done that. So stop saying you're the ancient true one and let's get back to the Bible. It's a clever strategy and it worked to help counter Rome's attacks. Moving on, Wycliffe believed that true ministry, unlike Roman Catholic theology of the time, that he believed that the true ministry of pastors was the preaching of God's word and not offering sacraments. That the means of grace that God gives to save sinners and keep sinners believing is the preaching of God's word. 
that's strengthened through baptism and Lord's Supper, but is not entered into by baptism and Lord's Supper. That it was the preaching of the Word of God and not merely sacraments that was the heart of true pastoral ministry. Wycliffe wrote a book called Pastoral Office where he outlines the life of what a good pastor should be. And he says that the holiness of a pastor and the wholesomeness of his teaching is what the church needs. The life of a good pastor is of necessity a mirror to be imitated by his flock. He also in this book condemned the flagrant immorality of the priests. We know a lot of what the priests practiced during this era because of Wycliffe's attacks. Wycliffe notes that many clergy of his day loved shameful gain of temporal goods more than their own soul salvation. And what did the clergy do? What did they exchange their souls for? Shameful gain. They exploited the positions of the faithful for material goods to make themselves more wealthy, to have more wealth and money. And Wycliffe notes that the priests of the day sell their souls for parties and prostitutes. Well, Wycliffe fought to reform the life of holiness in the pastorate, and many Englishmen converted to Christ because of his works. Eventually, Wycliffe's followers became known as Lollards. If you can say Lollards, it's kind of a fun word. It sounds like lollipop, lolly, lollard, la 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 la. All right, it's kind of stupid. But that word comes from a word that means to babble. And it was used by his critics to say they are babbling nonsense and heresy. But they proudly embraced being called Lollards because they went preaching the truth of the word of God in the common tongue, not in Latin that men couldn't understand, preaching the Bible and not the traditions of men. So they embraced the shame, they embraced the lollard uh, negativity, and they continued to grow despite the loss of favor and the persecutions that began to happen. And they, the lollard group, long after Wycliffe died, grew by the thousands up until a new regime in England under King Henry IV. Up until King Henry IV, the Lollards gained prominence not only in church reforms in England, but many Lollards became respectable parliament, parliamentary men. They were in the political realm, and they were making godly laws. They actually have one called the Twelve Conclusions that was passed in Parliament by these Wycliffe followers that was protesting Roman Catholic abuses and was in many ways the 95 Theses of England for the day. Well, that changed when King Henry IV, who was a devout Roman Catholic, said enough of this. He thought they were heretics, and he made it legal for the first time in English history to kill and burn at the stake any who opposed Roman Catholic doctrine. And one of the first victims under this vicious law was a man named Sir John Oldcastle. Oldcastle sounds like something from Robin Hood, right? Oldcastle, he was a soldier. He was a prominent landowner. But he was also a member of parliament who had high esteem, but he clashed with King Henry over this ungodly law, and he became enemy number one in the book. Well, eventually, King Henry hated him so much that he plotted to kill Oldcastle. However, in the province of God, Oldcastle managed to escape King Henry's clutches, and because he believed that the king no longer held the right to be king because of his heresy, he plotted to kidnap the king. Well, the king eventually discovered Old Castle's plan to kidnap him. He crushed it. Unbelievably, Old Castle escapes again from the clutches of King Henry, but later was eventually caught 
and he was executed in 1417. However, because of his kidnap conspiracies, Old Castle, representing in the minds of faithful Roman Catholic Englishmen, all the Lollards, made the Lollards lose favor in general in Parliament and with all the English nobility. So from 1417 up until 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses, the Lollards would be an underground church, passing on, quote, their heresies from father to children in private catechisms at home. Despite fierce, prof- despite fierce prosecutions in the Protestant of God, the Lollards survived, and they later merged into the Protestant Reformation stream when the time came. They came out from their hiding and said, we've been here the whole time. In the end, Wycliffe's radical teachings branded him a heretic, but by the grace of God, he never died a martyr's death. However, to highlight the hatred that many Roman Catholics had toward Protestant teachings of this time, Roman Catholic authorities later dug up Wycliffe's body 34 years later to burn it, and scatter his ashes in the River Swift to show this is what, ha- this is what happens to heretics 34, af- 34 years after he died. However, in the ironic twist of God and the province of God, because history, as we've talked about so many times, is poetic, that River Swift flows into the English Channel and into the greater Europe. And the teachings of Wycliffe in England will flow to the next man called John Huss and the Hussites that would pave the way for Martin Luther and and would spread the ashes of the Reformation all over Europe. Poetic, right? Wycliffe, like I mentioned, is called the morning star of the Reformation. If you know, the morning star is not actually a star, it's the planet Venus. How many of you have seen it before? If not, you you guys should do like stargazing thing. It's, you see it most clearly right before dawn. Right when it's the blackest and darkest, there's a bright morning star. Signaling there's a coming day. And Wycliffe has been called the morning star of the Reformation because he shined brightly against the dark backdrop of his religious day. And he signaled the coming of a day that would be the Protestant Reformation that would truly reform the church and keep it vital. So moving on, lastly, to John Huss and the Hussites. John Huss was born in 1372. He died in 1415. This is the last pre-Reformation guy and group that we're going to talk about. There's many others, but this is what we have time for. He was in Bohemia. Bohemia is uh, the old school name for the Czech Republic. If you know where that is, get out your map later on if you don't know where that's at. In the Czech Republic, he was a prominent reformer, the most prominent reformer in Bohemia. Bohemia resided within what we call the Holy Roman Empire of this day. And in the province of God, like I mentioned before, the theology of Wycliffe got into Huss's hands. And it began to cause a lot of reformation. The teaching profoundly affected Huss. And he became what what history calls the greatest disciple of Wycliffe was John Huss. Now, in his early years, Huss had studied for the priesthood at the University of Prague. Despite, in his own words, quote, playing too much chess... He excelled in his theological studies and became a prominent preacher at Bethlehem Chapel, and he became a rector at the University of Prague for several years. Because of these positions, because of his teaching position in the church and his teaching position at university, literally thousands of theology students and thousands of average Czech men, Bohemian men, 
got to hear faithful gospel preaching as he began to wrestle with the scriptures and he's reading Wycliffe and what Wycliffe taught, men were beginning to, com- to become saved and converting to the true biblical teachings of the gospel and rejecting a lot of the Roman papal claims. In many ways, Bohemia was almost the most thoroughly Reformation Protestant group before the Reformation. Almost everybody in Bohemia loved John Huss and loved what he was teaching. They were ripe for it. And long before Huss had come, they were ripe for Reformation because of the political binding of the, the princess of Bohemia to the king of England. A huge cultural bridge connected both cultures. And the theology students of both England and Bohemia got together crossed ideas, and this cross-pollination brought Wycliffe, brought the Bible, brought Bible translation to the common tongue, all these ideas brought them into Bohemia and began to flourish. So what did Huss teach? Well, in many ways, he taught exactly what Wycliffe taught. He was almost an exact clone. He believed that the Bible is the sole authority for the Christian life. He believed that the church is composed of the elect of God from all ages by grace alone through faith alone. Jesus, not the Pope, is the head of the church. He also argued vehemently against papal infallibility. Taking his cue from Wycliffe, Huss argued and appealed to the Eastern Orthodox, saying, they've been ancient, and they've been around long too, and they're not doing what you guys are doing. Something's off. Huss also taught that Christians must not obey or follow immoral clergy. He even believed that the state should depose such leaders. Also, like Wycliffe, Huss believed that preaching was the heart of pastoral ministry, not the sacraments. And he devoted his entire life to the preaching of God's word in the Bohemian tongue. His sermons reached thousands. He was, in many ways, the Charles Spurgeon for Bohemia. However, unlike Wycliffe, Huss did accept transubstantiation, but he denied that it forgave sin. Huss ardently denounced the self-indulgences. He rejected the doctrine of purgatory. And this attack on indulgences in particular landed him to be enemy number one of Pope John XXII because Pope John XXII used the selling of indulgences to finance a war against a rival papal claimant. You remember when we talked about the rise of the papacy and the political road to reformation, the papal road? This is where it all flows together. Huss's attacks on the pope, his attacks on indulgences, and other Roman Catholic traditions got him into deep trouble with Rome. He was threatened with excommunication, and the whole of the city of Prague was going to be under the excommunication of the Pope. Well, because he was a good pastor, he said, look, I'm going to step down. I'm just going to go. And he went to South Bohemia to save the members of Northern Bohemia from this uh, pronouncement. So he relocated, but he made many enemies along the way. His enemies wanted moral reform, but they didn't want all this theological reform. That was a step too far. That's a common theme during this time. Man, you sound good, but that's a step too far. That's too weird. That's not right. Well, Huss was later burned at the stake on July 6, 1415. Prior to his death, Huss was summoned to the Council of Florence that convened in 1414 that we've talked about in other lessons. The Holy Roman Emperor, a guy named Sigismund, fun name, had promised Huss safe passage And the Council of Florence claimed that they wanted to discuss Huss's views in earnest. However, it was all cloak and dagger. They lied. As soon as he arrived, the council ignored the emperor's promise of safe passage and imprisoned Huss for six months in horrid conditions, so much so that it destroyed his health, 
that he had fevers, daily headaches, internal bleeding, and vomiting. Huss, several months later, later stood before the church authorities to defend his views, but he never got the opportunity. All he was given on his first day of trial was to recant his teachings. Well, in bold humility, Huss replied, quote, Be sure that, I knew, that if I knew that I had written or preached anything erroneous against the law and against the Holy Mother Church or the Word of God, I would desire humbly to recant it. God is my witness. I have every desire to be shown better and more relevant scripture than those that I have written and taught. And if they were shown to me, I am ready, most willing to recant. Well, they didn't want that. They beat him. They put him back into prison. And on the second day of his trial, the council unfrocked Huss, stripping him of his priestly garments and his refusal to recant. One bishop even proceeded to preach a mini sermon during the uh, interrogation, reminding the council of their solemn duty to protect the church from schisms and from heretics. The irony behind that statement was that the Council of Florence was convened to end the great schism in, in Europe between the three rival papal claimants. You guys remember that lesson? Where there were three, at this time, there were three popes claiming to be the one pope of the church. And they said, we're going to get a council to make this all together. We need to get rid of schismatics. We want to preserve the unity of the church. And yet they're going after a guy who was trying to keep the church pure. Ironic. History is full of irony. Anyway, after the sermon, the bishops read several articles charging Huss of heresy. Almost all of the charges were fabricated, including a particular one, including that Huss taught that he was the fourth person in the Trinity. Well, Huss vocally protested each false accusation, but was met with only thunderous condemnation from the council. He could barely get a word in. Next, the council on the third day laid out all of Huss's books and one by one condemned them as heresy and called him to recant his works. Well, Huss petitioned the council to show from the Bible where each of his works were in error. They didn't want to hear it. But Huss, being a smart man and not just being a doormat, said, well, I'm confused. One, you have not shown me from Scripture where I'm in error. But two, most of these are written in Czech. You all don't know how to read Czech. So how can you judge me for works you can't even read? Well, again, he was drowned out by loud, thunderous opposition. And as an aside, church, tactics never change from the enemies of God. Keep up false accusations, be louder than the accused, give no room for the accused to appeal or refute, and only ever deny the validity of their claims is an easy way to shut up an enemy, which is what we see all the time in politics. However, Huss was smarter and better than that. He was humble, but he was bold. For three days, they interrogated him to recant his heresies, but he staunchly refused. In the end, they condemned him as a heretic. They mocked him. They stripped him of his priestly clothes again. They put on a devil's red cap, and they say, we commit your soul to the devil. Well, it is recorded that in his reply, Huss said, you commit my soul to the devil, but I commit myself to my most gracious Lord, Jesus Christ. And throughout the remainder of his trial, he remained bold yet humble. He's an illustrious example of how a Christian should endure suffering under injustice. He was dependent upon Christ. He was respectful to his enemies, but he was bold for truth and justice. He defended himself when applicable. He was always respectful in his words, but he always shot straight when there was stupidity and error. At one point, Huss turned the tables on his accusers as they began to strip him of his clerical robes. He said 
that Herod had once placed garments on Christ too and unfrocked him of his kingly robe in mockery for heresy. But Jesus, like, but Hus, like Jesus on the cross, in the middle of his interrogation, asked to pray. And he prayed for his accusers, saying, Lord Jesus Christ, I implore thee, forgive all my enemies for thy great mercy's sake. And thou knowest that they have falsely accused me and have produced false witnesses and have concocted false articles against me. Save their souls. While this was unheard and unheeded by his enemies, they proceeded to take Hus to the stake. They were so fearful that 800 guards surrounded Hus to lead him to the stake because of the popularity he had amongst the people. One man, 800 guards. They brought him to the stake because the council wanted to make an example of Hus because of all the things that he was doing. They had ropes bound around him, drenched in water, hay drenched in water so that the fires would burn longer, harder. He had a rusty chain around his neck. He was neck down in hay, and weeping, us, Huss uttered a declaration that would later foreshadow Martin Luther at his trial day at the Diet of Worms, when he said, Behold, these bishops exhort me to recant and abjure, but I fear to do so because lest I be a liar in the sight of the Lord, and lest I offend my own conscience in the truth of God. At the stake, he was given one last opportunity by a bishop named Holp of Popenheim to recant, in which Huss replied, I shall die with joy today in the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ that I have preached. When the soldiers gave Huss over to the executioners, the executioners were much more gentle. And in a loud voice, he prayed for his executioners and said, I thank you, my brothers, for being kind to me today. Their kindness toward him and his gentleness, like... Well, crazy. They were going to kill him. But in comparison to what he had just experienced, he thought it was a great mercy for them to be gentle, leading him to his death. And he prayed for them. And as the flames erupted, what the crowd was hoping for were screams of agony and of recanting. But in the end, the last words of John Huss were the singing of psalms. His ashes were immediately collected and thrown into another river make an example to ensure that the people knew what heretics, what their fate would be. But Huss died a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And to the Bohemians, he died a national hero. In an ironic twist, the council thought that they would preserve unity in the church through his death, but actually sparked civil war. The people were enraged with the council's decisions. So much so that it became a 14-year-long war between the Bohemian people and Roman Catholic authorities, so much so that they won, to the surprise of every. And for the first time in Roman Catholic history, Roman Catholics conceded to a dissenting group, allowing them to do many of the Reformation claims in Bohemia. More could be said about all this. Luther, though, would later say of John Huss, Without being aware of it, I have until now taught and held the whole doctrine of John Huss. In short, we are all Hussites without knowing it. Even Paul and Augustine are really Hussites. <laughs> of all the pre-reformers, John Huss was the greatest influence on Martin Luther. And his arguments, his tactics, influenced a lot of his theology. 
And there was a prophecy. It, most historians don't believe Huss actually uttered this, but we get this from John Fox from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was recorded that somewhere John Huss said while at the stake, today you burn a goose, but in a hundred years from now, from the ashes will arise a swan that you can neither boil nor roast. The word Huss in Czech means goose. They burned a goose, but he said in a hundred years from now, someone's going to rise, a swan, that you can't boil or roast. Regardless of Huss said it or not, a hundred years from his death, Luther nailed the 95 Theses. And a swan did arise, a faithful biblical teaching that led to a greater influence of Jesus Christ in the world. So we've looked at the mile markers on the road of Reformation. We looked at some of the highwaymen. Next week, we will look at our final road. We're going to go into the exit ramp where we will look at the Renaissance and a man named Erasmus. Those were the final two key ingredients needed to get to Luther and the success of Protestantism. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. It's a lot, but I pray that you would impress upon your people that which matters most. For your glory, namesake, amen.